Welcome back to the Fraser Rice Podcast. We're happy to have New York City psychotherapist Will Meyerhofer with us. Since 2005, he's been operating his private practice, known as A Quiet Room, offering individuals, couples, and group psychotherapy in Lower Manhattan. He has a broad practice, but has become known for counseling lawyers and business people in New York City. He has written four books, including the bestseller, Way Worse Than Being a Dentist, The Lawyer's Quest for Meaning. Additionally, he writes regularly for AboveTheLaw.com and on his blog, The People's Therapist. Welcome aboard, Will. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background. How did you go from working at a white shoe law firm in New York City to becoming a psychotherapist? Well, you know, basically every week I get an email that says, Hi, Will, I'd love to work with you, but I'm located in Toledo, Ohio, Tallahassee, Florida, or name your place, Louisville, Kentucky. Is there a lawyer like, you know, a therapist lawyer like you in my hometown that I can come and see? And you know, what I want to sort of stress to people is I'm a bit of a rare breed. Like, no, there aren't a whole lot of people who became psychotherapists after practicing securities law at Sullivan and Cromwell. I guess I look at it as, uh, you know, I was really just a therapist who pretended he was a lawyer for a while. Right. <laughs> but, you know, really did it. I mean, I took it pretty seriously. I mean, I get a lot of credibility for having really done it. You know, I mean, I was in the trenches. I was at a big number one white shoe law firm doing, you know, giant deals with Goldman Sachs and AIG and companies like that. So, the, you know, the obvious question then is, well, how the hell did I ever, you know, go from that to being a psychotherapist? The simple answer is my mom made me go to law school. Uh, which, you know, sounds embarrassing and silly until I listen to a whole lot of other lawyers say, oh, yeah, my mom made me go too. And I was smart enough, I guess, that I, you know, sort of achieved and I guess I had convinced myself that that meant I really could do this. And then I got to a law firm and realized, well, you know, this really isn't me at all. You know, I mean, I could do well in school and everything and get in. But, you know, once you get there, it's really, you know, it's it's who you are and whether you really are that person. You know, are you a securities lawyer? And And the answer was no, not at all. And so uh, at some point, uh, Sullivan gave me, like, I got a bad review, and they sort of said in a very gentle Sullivan kind of way, you really ought to think about being somewhere else in about six months. Right. Which, you know, they did in those days. Now I think they give you, like, three months, you know. <laughs> but, uh, and, you know, I did. I took all six months. I looked like crazy. I mean, I guess they figured I'd be gone in about two weeks. I would just kind of pack up my things and quietly, you know, slink out the door and uh, go to another law firm, which was the expectation, you know, some sort of second-tier firm or something. In my world, I practiced law briefly coming out of law school and it became very obvious. In fact, I knew it in law school that the billable hour and I were not going to be very good friends. And you're around so many intense people and uh, it sounds like they uh, went in, go into law for the same reasons that maybe you and I did. We, it seemed like a good idea at the time or you got outside pressures in order to do it. Are, are there any other universal truths to, to the people that you work with on that front? Oh, you mean people going into law for wrong reasons or just people going sure. to law, period? I mean, I mean, the thing is, uh, I mean, it was a really intense job and it's being done by people who take it very, very seriously. You know, I was at the very highest echelons of, uh, you know, uh, Wall Street law firms and, and those guys are really, really good. And, you know, it's not, I mean, law is spun as a bit of an intellectual endeavor. You know, the notion is you get this degree and you get good grades and they're all intellectuals and it's all very scholarly. But, you know, it kind of isn't really. I mean, at that, I mean, I guess it is if you're like a law professor. And I guess there was a time when someone like me would have wound up, you know, teaching. You know? Right. You know, but, but I mean, those jobs don't really exist anymore. So, I mean, you know. It, well, many times, at least in the corporate law background, you're you're the plumber in the in the deal. Uh, you know, you're yeah. papering the deal. You're part of maybe part of the structuring of it. And there isn't a lot of new ground to break and at the end of the day, you're, you've got a very specific set of things you have to do to get the deal across the finish line. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, at a place like Sullivan, 
you don't call them in. I mean, all right, there's some routine work that we just get because we have the relationships and sure. it's, you know, like a shelf takedown or whatever, you know. But a lot of the stuff we handled was, uh, it was a mess. It was really complicated. No one had ever done it before. It wasn't clear how the heck to structure it. And the reason they gave it to us is that it would have overwhelmed probably any other law firm, you know. So, I mean, every deal was a fresh hell, you know. It was it was always some incredible, I always would think, well, that was a nightmare, but, you know, we closed it and now I'll get on some nice easy puff ball of a deal that'll, you know, no, it wasn't like that. I mean, the next one was more horrible than than that one, you know. So if it's new and novel, theoretically, that should scratch the intellectual itch. Uh, when your clients come to you, what are they struggling with? Uh, okay, well, I mean, look, there are two things you want in a therapist, right? That they're give a damn and that they're smart enough to understand what you're talking about. You know, if, if they're not smart, you end up with this really caring, loving, soft, gentle person who doesn't understand a thing you're saying. And if they don't give a damn, you end up with this intellectual who's staring at the clock, you know. So what I try to be is uh, someone who actually does give a damn and somebody who also knows what they're talking about. And having that background really helps. So, so people show up in my office a lot of the time because they are, you know, working on Wall Street or they're, you know, uh, in the legal world or the financial world. So the clients, they're struggling with, with something internally you know, related to purpose or the type of work that they're doing or where they fit in in things. Well, I mean, there, there are a couple ways of looking at it. One is they're probably suffering from either anxiety or depression because those are sort of the two big things. Um, anxiety is essentially you're scaring yourself to death uh, to try to not be surprised and scared to death. You're trying to be so hypervigilant that nothing jumps out and goes boo and you go, ah, you know. And uh, depression is essentially you feel like you're failing and you feel like, you know, you have no one to blame but yourself. So you start beating yourself up and beating yourself up and really getting down on yourself. But another way of looking at it is, uh, I guess Freud had this uh, idea that there are these three pillars of uh, life, you know, these three living tasks. And uh, it's playing and working and loving. And uh, so you could look at it that way. I mean, people come to me with, you know, playing, which would be, uh, you know, social anxiety, feeling isolated, feeling alone, don't have friends, don't have a network of friends. Uh, loving, which would be romantic issues, you know, can't find a partner, you know, or working, uh, just issues um, with career, you know. And of course, I get a lot of issues with career. In fact, I get a lot of lawyers uh, who say to me, look, um, my job is fine. I'm actually here for something else. <laughs> I had one of those today, you know. It's like, I know you deal with a lot of people with law and unhappiness around law, but I'm actually okay with the job. I'm, I'm in the middle of a divorce. That's what I want to talk about, you know. You deal with a lot of people who've been working really hard. They've probably built up a lot of defenses in order to get from A to Z uh, so that they could personally get through things and probably aren't used to showing a lot of vulnerability. How do you get them to open up? Do you have a process around that? Uh, or is that something that just is a natural consequence of your of question and answer and information uh, transfer that, that people naturally come out of their shells? You give them enough time. You know, it's funny, the ones who are really like that, the ones who really won't open up, by the time they call me, they're usually at wit's end. You know, it's funny, I get some where if I can't get back to them in time, they'll cancel or something, and then maybe they'll call me again in three months or something like that, you know, because I'll be on vacation or something, and I'll, you know, say, hey, sorry, I'm on vacation, I'll schedule it, you know, two weeks out when I get back, and then they'll cancel or not show or something like that. And then I had one person three times in a row cancel, and then finally um, said, listen, I'm really sorry, but it kept getting really bad and I kept calling you and then I, the next day it wouldn't be as bad so I'd cancel. <laughs> I, you know, I try to stress them. It doesn't have to be that bad to call me. It's really okay to just, you know, make an appointment and come in and talk. But I, I guess the ones who are the most resistant are, are often the ones who wait to the last minute. Sometimes, you know, they do put in the, on that exterior. I, I had one client that we used to laugh about her first appointment. 
she came in and I was intimidated. I mean, she was in her little suit with her briefcase and she was just one of those attorneys that looks like she can just, you know, spit nails at you, you know? <laughs> and, and I, I, uh, I was like, well, okay. You know, you know, within two or three appointments, she would just come in and grab a box of tissues and have a good cry. <laughs> and you know, I mean, she was miserable, you know, it's just, she had that defense on and And it's funny too. I think it helps. I mean, I used to do that. You know, I knew exactly what she was doing. I used to put on that persona. I used to be this lawyer from Sullivan and Cromwell in my suit who was very, very serious and rather aggressive. You know, I even pull it on sometimes when, you know, I get clients that are playing head games with me around scheduling or something. And I'll, I'll say, listen, I'm an attorney too. Don't, you know, don't mess around here. <laughs> you <know? laughs> you know, like I, I worked on Wall Street, you know. That's like cool having, it, you know? It's like having Joe Kennedy run the SEC. That's the, that's the perfect guy for it. <laughs> There's this idea that, that therapists are like, you know, I, uh, the village vicar or something. You know, I feel like I should be wearing like a pastel cardigan and be, you know, very, very nice and sort of floppy brown leather shoes and, and corduroy trousers and just kind of, you know, but I'm not, you know, I mean, the fact is I was an SNC securities lawyer, you know, and I did M&A work and, you know, I, I you know, I can connect with you because I was there too. I, I, I get real, you know, it's, uh, there, people have very odd ideas about therapy, you know, it's, and what they're expecting. And I, I think I confront some of those, like I turn them on their head a little bit. So when you're dealing with people who are, are successful or working hard and doing well, but either numerically or whether they, it's making partner, they don't feel like they measure up or maybe their chosen field, they aren't making enough to measure up compared to their neighbors and so on. That would seem to be, especially in New York City, grist for the mill for just about anybody who's working in New York. There's always a bigger, better deal going on out there. What do you start to talk about to people uh, about those types of issues? Yeah, it's kind of amazing. I've been working with some <laughs> high net worth individuals. And it's kind of funny because I keep thinking, well, that's the richest guy I ever worked with, you know, and then I get a richer guy. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, you know, how it is with money. It's kind of, uh, you know, you just keep tacking on zeros and you think, God, how Lord, how rich can these people get, you know? And I had a guy the other day who said, you know, I've got $100 million dollars. So why have I not had sex with my wife in a year? And why do I hardly know my kids? And, you know, why do I hate my job and dread going in every morning? And, you know, and I, you know, I guess I, you know, you have to sort of understand what money is, you know, I mean, money is this reward scheme that we have to incent people. So they'll go chasing, you know, after something and, you know, it's one, one incentive and uh, it provides convenience. You know, I mean, money's great in the sense that, you know, it gets rid of a lot of worries and you, you know, get carried around on sort of a cloud of other people doing all those little things that you need in life and stuff. But I mean, you know, look, I mean, let's face it, you still get sick, you still die, you know, you still have to have romantic relationships that are meaningful and money can't buy you any of that. It can't buy you meaningful relation with your kids. It can't buy you friends, you know, and in fact, it could sort of counter that, you know, good friendships by uh, presenting barriers of anything. Well, it's scary too, because I think when you have any numerical measure that people start to sort of hang their self-esteem on, that becomes really dangerous. And, and especially when you talk about someone who has $100 million and what's the difference between 150 and 25 and ultimately two or and on yeah. down, uh, you're not, you don't have that much more self-esteem. And when the other trappings of, of I put in quotes, success aren't, aren't there for you, uh, that, 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 that seems to me to be something that could send you down a, a, a dark path. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're making that kind of money, you probably have, you know, made making money really important. And, and so there's, you know, I mean, there's actually this kind of fallacy. It, it's a kind of one of these psychology test things where they say that the expectation of happiness around a possession is kind of distorted. Like there's this notion that if I buy that Mercedes Benz, I'm going to be incredibly happy. And then when they do the sort of testing of how happy are you, you know, a month later when you have the Mercedes, it's like, well, that's all right. I mean, it's not the end of the world. But beforehand, you're like, oh my God, when I get that Mercedes, you know, I'm going to just be 
walking on air. It's going to be so great. I mean, that's why it's an incentive rather than sort of a substantive thing, money, you know? I mean, it was, it was odd to have somebody with so much money, so much unimaginable amount of money, you know, say, you know, why hasn't this done more for me, you know? And, and I guess I wanted to get back to Freud's basics of, you know, working and loving and playing, you know, that it doesn't do that for you. It, it, yeah, it's nice. I mean, everybody likes having money, but uh, there's a lot more that we still need to work on. I mean, you need to figure out what happened with you and your wife, how you lost your way. You don't seem to know each other. Now, it could be that I can get you talking again and it'll start to happen and you'll think, oh, I love her. I respect her. I'm attracted to her. I want to be with her. Or it might be that you have grown apart and it is time to say, you know, why am I in this? But it, it so often it seems like cemented in place. And I, I guess the money only sort of exacerbates that too, that, you know, once you're that wealthy, you know, you have your mansion and you have your, you know, your circle of people around you and everything, you can get kind of frozen into expectations of others, you know, like... I've heard a lot of very wealthy clients say to me, oh, my children would be destroyed if our marriage were to break up or, you know, we couldn't leave Scarsdale or whatever, even though I really want to live down in Soho because they're in school and it would be horrible. And, or even, you know, this one kind of surprised me, but I think it's, it's eye-opening is, um, well, I couldn't close down my investment fund because all the people who work there are counting on it. And without me, you know, we'd have to close it down or something, you know, and there's this sort of sense of I built this business or, you know, this huge law firm that I created or something where I'm, you know, 50% of the billables, you know, and all the clients expect me to meet with them. And and if I leave, what's going to happen? So that it becomes almost a trap, the success. It's, I was going to uh, say a gilded cage. You've, yeah. you've, you've created this uh, this foundation of responsibility that all of a sudden very difficult to extricate yourself. And if you attach guilt to that, even more difficult. I had a, a managing partner of a law firm who wanted to paint. I mean, finally, what we ended up doing was getting us a, a sort of weekend place with a big light-filled room and an easel and some paints. And, you know, and I kind of encouraged him to take his hours down and phase down his responsibilities a little bit and make some space for that part of him, you know. And he, I don't know, he may have been a terrible painter and a great managing partner, but I mean, he needed to express that part of who he was. It, it's funny, too, how many, you know, incredibly successful people in the sort of world of money and everything have other interests, you know other, you know, impractical things they want to do. This podcast is uh, exhibit A for me. It, yeah. It's something that I really needed to do, whether or not it has any bearing on my day job. It really doesn't. But it it's important for me. And it's one of those situations where if I didn't do it uh, and, and pursue it and push it forward, that I did not want to be left wondering and to have this interest unattended to or else uh, that would have created a real emotional issue. And it seems so minor, but it isn't. And I think it does help me in my other ways of life and especially my day job and advising people. It, I'm glad I do it and it's an important thing. I think, you know, thank goodness for philanthropy. I mean, it, it sounds crazy, but philanthropy, I mean, you know, you think, well, you donate the money and you get a plaque on the wall and that's why they do it or whatever. But I, it's usually more than that. It's usually like you really, you know, you always wanted to be a doctor, but you instead opened a hedge fund. And so you donate a wing of a hospital and kind of get involved, in, you know. Um, or, I mean, I'm in my own small way on the board of a, of a little jazz venue that helps, you know, get young musicians uh, their first gigs and, uh, you know, mentors and things like that, uh, the jazz gallery. And, uh, you know, I got on the board and I, you know, for me, it's like, I guess I always wanted to be a jazz musician, you know, but <laughs> this is where I get to hang out with them, you know, and, and they need me and I, they, and I need them, you know. It's, perhaps yeah. talent and achievement work at an intersect for you, but you found another way to help uh, help push that agenda along. Well, you know, we're all born with these um, talents, you know, the, these uh, aptitudes, and we don't really choose them. I mean, if we were sort of allowed to say, okay, well, I'd like to be the rock singer, you know, you know, or I'd like to be the killer banjo player, you know, but it, you're, instead you're just born with these aptitudes, you know, and, and, and it, it has all these 
endless ramifications. I mean, we reward with money, some of them just so heavily and others we sort of ignore. Um, but they're really just, we need them all. You know, if everyone on the planet were, I just snapped my fingers and they were all Einstein, you know, it would be the collapse of our society. You know, I mean, it would be a catastrophe because we don't need all Einsteins. What we need is some people who design computers and other people who can, you know, fix your plumbing and other people who, uh, you know, play saxophone. And, you know, we need everyone. And it's sort of odd. It's sort of random who we're born, what aptitude we happen to have and what role we fall into. So what happens to that client of yours who works hard and is talented, but they feel like they've been left behind or that they're not... Uh, they're not achieving the way they want to, and whether it's reflected numerically or within within their firm or their business, uh, that the, the, their performance doesn't match up with their expectation. You know, I, I was asked at a panel at Harvard uh, a while back. Uh, it was a panel on happiness, and uh, <laughs> they were all supposed to define happiness. And it was a whole bunch of either they're people from the clergy, psychologists, you know. And my definition of happiness was living your life as an authentic expression of, of, of the authentic self. You know, there's a lot of authentic in there and there should be because it's really about authenticity. And um, if you're not really succeeding, it's probably because you're in the wrong role. It, it just really is. I mean, that, and that's a heavy message, you know, because I had a lady at Sullivan and Cromwell when I was there who kept saying, you know, maybe you're just not cut out for this will. And I thought, you evil witch, you know, how dare you <laughs> say that to me? I, want, I need to do well here, damn it. You know, I mean, please say something nice to me. But of course, she was dead on. You know, I mean, she was, she, she had pegged it. You know, I, it wasn't an authentic expression of who I was. I didn't care about, you know, what a securities regulation or whatever. I mean, securities regulation is like this complicated board game that I could learn the rules to, but I wasn't interested enough to bother. You know, when you have a friend who's a game geek and you're just like, I, I don't want to learn this. I'm just going to have a drink. You know, that was kind of how I felt doing securities regulation. And, uh, so, you know, when someone comes to me and they say, well, you know, I'm not succeeding, I'm not getting, you know, the success I want, I, I usually think, all right, you're probably in the wrong role. You know, it's like, you know, there used to be guilds in the Middle Ages, and you're probably in like the barrel maker guild, and you want to be in the shoemaker guild or something, you know, you're, you're probably just doing the wrong thing. I mean, one of the classic things that therapists get, and I've got this a few times, is you get the uh, PhD student who says, you know, I need someone to help me finish my dissertation. <laughs> You know, you're in, you're in deep trouble at that point. Yeah, I mean, you know, the fact is, there's a part of you that doesn't want to do this, and at very least, okay, rather than you know, and I, yeah, I can send you to a life coach or whatever, and a life coach will probably you know beat you with a whip and make you do five words a day, or you know, just force you to do it, you know. But I mean, rather, what I think of it as is, there's a little kid in you, you know, this is kind of Freudian, but there's this little id, this little seven year old or whatever, and he doesn't want to do it. <laughs> And you really can't ignore this kid because at some level he's got the controls, you know. So we have to sit him down at the table and just say, okay, you know, why don't you want to do this? And probably the message is very fundamental and elementary and, and just core. It's just because this isn't who I am. I'm not, you know, this, I'm not interested in this. This isn't, doesn't sing to me. So what, what do you do with the clients who are successful and maybe they, they've come to some level of balance in their life, but they feel like they're an imposter in their world? And what I mean by that is they don't give themselves enough credit for the success they had given where they are. Or do you find that most people who, have, who are high achievers, that the ego in them takes credit for things uh, and whether or not they're there by some piece of luck or fortunate circumstance, uh, they're able to ignore that? Well, if they're doing really well, they probably know they're really good. Usually what the issue is, is we tend to sort of discount things that are easy for us, you know? 
So, I mean, like, I have a lot of lawyers who are like, look, I'm great at it. I mean, they use me all the time. Everybody wants to work with me. I keep getting promoted. I, you know, how are your reviews? Oh, well, you know, they tell me I'm fantastic. You know, they keep giving me bonuses. I mean, look, I wasn't like that. I was a terrible associate. And, you know, my reviews were like fine until they got rid of me and they were terrible, you know. So, I mean, I don't think they even realize that that's unusual. I had a uh, lawyer in the other day and... Uh, you know, got glowing reviews and basically told, you know, you are a partner track kid. Head of the department wrote, you know, best associate I think I've ever worked with. Um, and he was like, well, you know, that's good, but I wonder what I'm going to do and am I happy? And, you know, and I thought, well, look, let's just stop there and just pat you on the back, right? I mean, hey, you go, right? I mean, that's, I mean, that's really rare. That's, that's, you're good at this. And he's like, well, it isn't very hard. I mean, what's it to it? And I'm like, well, I mean, right? But that's the thing. I mean, I, Yasha Heifetz picks up the violin. He's like, ah, it's just a fiddle. I'm good at it, you know? I mean, you know, it's, it's, you start to realize that we really are born with talents and you can take them for granted sometimes, I think. What happens to the high-end associate who is really good at what they do, but they lack the other skills that may make them a good partner, whether it's yeah. the rainmaking skills, the relationship management skills, uh, the management uh, of other lawyer skills, but they're spectacular technicians, let's say. Uh, yeah, what what do you do for that person? That's a big one. I had a lawyer who thanked me the other day because uh, I said to him, I said, look, let's just reframe this, okay? I keep hearing you tell me I hate marketing. I don't want to have to do that. You know, I'm a lawyer. Why should I have to take people out to lunch and schmooze them? And I said, let me just reframe this as that's the hardest part of this job. That, you know, it's not just that you hate it because it's so stupid or silly or pointless or whatever. It's that it's actually hard. That is very tough to confront your resistance you know, really, frankly, social phobia to sitting with a stranger and trying to persuade him to give you a job. You know, I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, it may not be, you know, sound as hard as analyzing, you know, 15 securities cases and trying to, you know, write a brief or something, but it's in, in many ways it's harder and it may be harder for that person. You know, so I, I try to point out, have some respect for that aspect of the job. You know, don't dismiss it. I, I think um, taking someone out to lunch and having it go well is every bit as challenging as, you know, framing a brief, you know, <laughs> or, or coming up with a strategy for a case or, or you, know, you know, outlining a complicated merger deal or something, you know. Well, it, it, sometimes the simple aspect of the job is, is, is actually doing the work. It, it, it is that relationship management that's crazy. I, I, yeah. And from my perspective, an example would be, uh, you know, when I'm out talking to clients or uh, referring uh, advisors uh, on a golf course, well, I love to play golf. I'm okay at it, and I don't mind being in front of people. But that is a very difficult thing for me because I'm I'm trying to keep I'm trying. I have multiple agendas at that point. I'm trying to sort of keep it business oriented. I'm trying to make sure people have a good time so that they remember why they're there with me. And then otherwise, I'm just trying to drive the discussion forward. All in the meantime, you know, making sure I don't kill someone off in their house uh, by shanking a drive or something like that. <laughs> and that's a lot of balls to keep in the air. Uh, it's a it's a challenge, and I mean, sometimes my whole, my sometimes it's not fun. <laughs> I know. I mean, the funny thing is that yeah, I sit with. I mean, my job is that. Entirely, you know, I mean, I sit down and relate to people for an hour at a time all day long, you know, and so, you know, that was the stuff I was good at. I mean, the crazy thing is after I left law, I actually went into business world for a while. I was uh, a marketing uh, executive at a dot com. And uh, I was pretty good, actually, at closing deals. You know, I think what I realized and some people, other therapists, I think, have had this uh, revelation is that, you know, I could have been a really good salesman, but instead I decided to, you know, use my magical powers for good instead of evil. 
you know, I could be selling things to people, but instead I decided to, you know, try to help them with therapy. But it's, you know, I mean, salesmen have an element of, of sort of a psychotherapy thing going, you know, I mean, they, you have to connect with people at an authentic level. What we call, a, you know, a sustaining a, an authentic contact, you know, uh, holding the contact with the person, the real connection. Well, in my, in my line of work, ultimately, I have to get people to trust that I can deliver on what we say we can deliver. And yeah. if you can't convey that in a, in a short amount of communication, you're going to end up in trouble because you, there just aren't enough hours in the day and enough people out there in order to make the business end of it make sense. So yeah. what you're saying resonates with me. And it's about, you know, the funny thing is people have an idea that sales is always sleazy and fake. But in fact, good sales is incredibly authentic. Um, there's something about sort of exposing yourself in a really honest way that that is the most effective way to sell. <laughs> and that's why you should believe in what you're selling and, you know, your word should be good and, and that kind of thing. Uh, well, ultimately, if you're solving problems and you're giving good advice and yeah. in, in, a, in a sense a sale is a consequence of that as opposed to the reverse where the product is kind of the, the, the driving force, then it feels better for the person who's on – actually for both people on both sides of the table. You're, you feel good that you're helping someone, you know, you're elevating them past their current problem and then the person on the other side is having their problem solved. Yeah, I had a salesman, a really, really successful salesman, like CEO of a company, tell me uh, they're not, you know, they're buying you, essentially. Right. And, uh, and you, you have to make sure that it's a good product, you know. As, as we sort of move over to Wall Street and finance, we talked mm -hmm. a little bit about believing in what you sell. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you deal with the people who are good at what they do and successful either selling or advising but they get wrapped up in the paradoxes that litter Wall Street in terms of conflicts of interest, uh, uh, all sorts of things where uh, many times a product is helping, helping the company out as much or more than it's helping the client out. How do you get people to reconcile those differences and move forward? And, and if they don't, where does that show up when they come to you? Yeah, you know, I've had that problem mostly – I guess mostly in regard to hedge funds, you know, there's a, there's a real feeling here that, I mean, look, I mean, one of my clients said to me, you know, this isn't an investment strategy, it's a compensation strategy, you know, which is, I guess, an old line now, but it, you know, I mean, there, a lot of these guys in the investment world have sold a bill of goods, which is I'm going to beat the S&P and you're going to pay me a high fee and everything. And I, I have watched some of these guys really go through rough years where the fund hasn't delivered or... You know, uh, you can see on the look on their face, you know, <laughs> just, oh, God, it's been a terrible year. I've got people pulling money, you know, that kind of thing. Um, there's a sort of fatalism to it. There's, uh, you know, I mean, I've read The Black Swan and all that. I mean, you know, it's a lot of it is luck, you know, and, and you know, what you're doing is you're very heavily leveraged on things that ought to work and you keep doing it until it doesn't work. And then, you know, you retire. I mean, one guy said to me, you know, you retire at 40 in this business. You know, if you're lucky, you retire with a pile of money at 40. You pull out as much cash as you can and you put it away in something safe like, you know, real estate or something, theoretically safe. But it takes a toll. It really does. I don't think you can do it unless you're convinced that there's at least a chance that you can pull it off. You know, I've had some where I could see a quiver of doubt in their eyes, maybe. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. You never want that. It is. I mean, I wonder with that, with that business. You know, I mean, a lot of the guys I do, I mean, like something like iBanking, I mean... You know, the world needs iBankers. It's a very tricky thing to be a good iBanker. It's amazing. It's this odd combination of skills. You have to be incredibly smart and an amazing salesman. Uh, kind of at the same time, it's like a weird package. When well, you have uh, to be a really good connector. Is it, you, I, to yeah. me, it seems like a really good investment banker. You know, it, it a at some level, it goes without saying you have to be numerically smart and understand the companies. You have to have a good set of contacts. 
But you have to have your antennae spread very wide to be able to see why this combination or this divestiture works and and then be able to execute it. Yeah, it's a tricky. I mean, there's a reason they get paid so much, I think, is that it's really hard to pull off, you know. It's it's a tough business. But at least there there isn't the sense. I mean, I don't know. I guess there's always a little bit of fakery at the heart of Wall Street, you know. Puffer, puffery is a part of uh, every uh, every one of those things because if you were just left with the prospectus, I think most people would look at it. And it's just gobbledygook <laughs> and numbers, and you're saying, "Well, wait a minute, what? There's got to be there's got to be a story to it." Uh, and one of my colleagues said, "You know what? Uh, in the wealth management world, we're in the entertainment business, uh, or more specifically, a show business, because you have to be able to tell the story behind what you're doing." Or else it's not going to resonate with with the person across the table from you. Yeah, it's kind of. I had one guy who was doing sort of. I think they. I think they literally call it a dog and pony show where you're selling a hedge fund to uh, a bunch of investors, and he was going around the country. Well, he was pitching. You know what they were selling. I mean, he was pitching the investments, and uh, but it sounded tough. It sounded like you know you had to make the case, and uh, you know you're, you're meeting with these vastly wealthy people who would you know if they liked you they'd put a little in I guess and see how it did. But um, I had one guy, I guess he was a lawyer and his buddy ran a hedge fund and he had the story where the guy would call him at 4 a.m. and just say, oh, dude, I'm so wired up. I just need you to talk me down. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh, yeah. And I thought, wow, I guess this is a tough job, you know. To get back to law for a second, the practice of law is very different from what's portrayed in the media. You and I have both been in it and, you know, the days of LA Law and Suits and all these other shows that sort of show the snippets that are glamorous or at the very least interesting in one or two minute intervals. In reality, if you're a almost any kind of lawyer at this point, the hours are just brutal. And yeah, the hours have made the whole profession kind of non-viable. I mean, it's it's. I mean, the crazy thing about law is that, all right, one problem is that the schools blew up to the size where the class sizes are literally like 400 students in a class at some of these schools, 500, I think, at Georgetown and and maybe even at Harvard. I don't, and so there are just too many lawyers, you know. I mean, every, I mean, it became a very profitable thing for the schools because uh, you could charge an unbelievably high tuition for something that really is very inexpensive. I mean, you have a teacher sit and give a lecture to 100 kids, and you're charging the equivalent of something, honest to God, like $200 an hour for each kid for that lecture. I mean, when you think about how absurd that is, and you could pretty much play a tape to them of the same lecture because it's identical to the one he gave the year before. You know, it's contract lecture. I guess what I'm saying is there's there's no laboratories, there's no equipment, there's not, you know, I mean, law is, is inexpensive to teach. You don't really need a computer. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing to it really, uh, but they can charge it. So the point being that, you know, at, at NYU, when I was there, the dean of the law school, no you know, no surprise, became the dean of NYU because the law school was generating so much cash that it was basically paying for the entire university. I mean, the law school was the cash cow, uh, which is weird, but that was the truth. I mean, all those buildings that are getting built and everything, it was all coming from money from the law school. So, you know, you had this problem where you had too many people going into law, and a lot of them obviously weren't really cut out for it, people like me, and we sort of realized it and went off and became hairdressers or, you know, uh, banjo players or whatever else we really wanted to do. But then you've got this other problem that even the people who really love it, you know, who really you know, their heart really sings. I mean, like there are people who love being accountants. There are people who love being lawyers. There, you know, it's a sort of a nerdy thing maybe, but, you know, I have stumbled on just born lawyers and they come to me and say, the hours are crushing. <laughs> I mean, it's just as simple as that, that to make the kind of money that they expect us to make, 
you know you're a lawyer when you talk in terms of billable hours and you just spit these numbers out and everybody's like, oh, yeah, well, that's all, oh, gee whiz, wow. But I think, I think ordinary civilians don't know what, you know, 2950 means. That means 2,950 billable hours in one year. I think that comes out to what, roughly 60 hours of working each week? I was going to say, it's, a, it's at yeah. least two thirds of your waking hours. Yeah, are billable. That, that's not the unbillable ones that you're right. just at the office butting around or, you know, going to, you know, get lunch or something. I mean, that, that's a staggering amount of time. That means essentially every weekend you're working. You know, l- lawyers say things to me that are just, you know, it takes a while to register. Like, you know, I, I took the weekend off, you know. <laughs> and you think, hey, hang on, it's a weekend. You don't have to take it off, man. I mean, you're right. <laughs> or, you know, they left me alone mostly on my vacation. I worked a couple hours every day, but I mean, it was pretty good, you know. And you think, you were skiing in Utah. I mean, what the, you know, for one week, you haven't had a, a vacation all year and they had you working every day of it, you know. But to them, that seems like, wow, whatever, you know, I only worked a couple hours a day. That was amazing, you know. You know, it just distorts everything, you know, to, to a point where it damages the relationships. You know, I had, I had a guy very recently I was just talking to who, um, you know, how was he supposed to court this woman that he's sort of hoping down the line to maybe propose to for marriage, you know, when he keeps having to cancel dates, you know, like dinner dates and things, you know, stuck in the office, sorry, honey, you know, that kind of thing. It, it takes a real toll. You know, you know, of course, your friends too. I mean, they've given up on you by then, but, right. you know. No, I mean it's a it's a brutal thing though. I mean if you if you aren't available beyond your job, then then you're really locked in, and many that helps perpetuate the the cycle, and, yeah. and then it, your relationships become wholly office related, and then and then if you yeah. and then if you really don't buy into what you're doing, then you're in a bad spiral. Well, they end up having affairs at the office. That's a whole syndrome. I mean, that's like a, a whole trope in, in the big law world is the the office affairs, which sure. could just be flirting with that guy, you know, down the hall, or it could be, you know, a whole full-blown affair or something. I mean, uh, I see a lot of that. A lot of times it fizzles out because, you know, they have this phrase, you know, I, you've heard the phrase beer goggles, you know, mm-hmm. they, they call them law goggles, which is, you know, <laughs> when, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning and you're, you're working on a closing and uh, that, that tax lawyer suddenly doesn't look too bad, you know. I think they call it lawyer cute. You know, he's, he's lawyer cute, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's because, you know, you're going out of your mind and, and you see all kinds of uh, side effects of it. I mean, people are, you know, compensatory acting out is sort of this huge thing that I deal with. You know, like like I work whatever, 29, 50 a year or something, whatever this crazy number of hours. I'm there days, nights, weekends, you know. And uh, oh, yeah, there, there's a firm called Jones Day and they, the nickname sure. was Jones Days, Nights and Weekends. Uh, but I mean, you know, these are running jokes, but it's, just, it's a serious reality and uh, it eats your life. You know, you really don't have any room for anything else. And so the, um, the compensatory behavior, that's w- when you have yeah. two hours, you just... You, you want instant you, gratification. Right. I mean, so it's, you it's, either play video games or, you know, look, it gets really awful. You know, you snort cocaine, you get high, you drink way too much, you call up a prostitute, you know, and I, I've had people in very powerful positions, you know, general counsels at companies and stuff, and I, I get them into... Uh, or partners, I get them into the office and they start telling me what they're doing when they get home from the office. And I'm like, wow, he's out of control. You know, it's like, well, I ate a whole pizza and then, you know, <laughs> smoked 12 bong hits. And, and I'm like, You've, you're, you know, you're putting your life into such a small box that when we let you out of that box, you just go crazy, you know. You know, the, the culture of alcohol is all over law. I mean, it's weird. I was at a uh, gala. It was sort of linked to lawyers and depression and suicide. It's uh, some group that they asked me to come and and the, the crazy thing is the event was just as alcohol-soaked as any other big law event would be. 
to the point where I sort of, you know, walked out the door because I was thinking, well, I got to get home. You know, I've got a husband at home and uh, make him dinner and stuff. And there was a guy out there just, you know, absolutely sloppy drunk, just, you know, another one, you know, puking on the sidewalk. And I thought, that's a big law party, you know. Uh, you know, and it's because they're, it's compensatory acting out. You know, they're, they're bottled up. And when you release all that tension, uh, they tend to go bonkers. What happens when you have clients that, that have chemical issues and depression, anxiety? How do you unwind the one from the other, i.e., are there times when the, the chemical issue drives the other behavior and or other times where it's vice versa, where the depression is really something where people go to the chemicals to, to unwind? Well, yeah, they use this term self-medicating with, uh, with substances. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think, um, you know, there is a sort of I'm seeking something, so I'll use this substance, you know, um, to try to get it, some sort of respite or escape or relief or something. You know, I, it's funny, when I work with substances, you know, I'm a great believer in 12-step. I think AA has saved countless lives, and it's a terrific organization, and I'm all for it. I do think that if I'm working along with somebody who's in recovery, or maybe somebody who isn't, maybe their drinking hasn't quite gotten to where they feel they're alcoholic, but they want to pull back on it, I have something I call the happy Ralph theory, which is a guy, Ralph, that I worked with, who was drinking way too much. And I said, you know, my sense here is that if we could get you happy with your life, you'd stop drinking. <laughs> so we took this guy's life and just made him happy. You know, we just, we, we got him into a different apartment where he had enough space. Uh, he adopted some kids. He wanted to do that. You know, he uh, changed jobs to something that didn't have these long hours that he's working before. And, you know, at a certain point I said, well, you know, how are we doing on the drinking? And he said, I haven't even thought about it. I haven't, I mean, why would I drink? I'm so happy. So, you know, um, I had an alcoholic once say this to me. She said, um, you know, everyone drinks on anger. Well, I think I asked her, you know, are you drinking on anger? Are you drinking your anger? You know, and she said, of course, everyone drinks when you drink anger, you know. Um, if you're not angry, if you're not unhappy, you're probably not going to act out in these crazy ways. And I've seen it over and over again where I'll work with uh, people and just let them get all that, you know, what's making them unhappy out, you know. I mean, psychotherapy really is about getting out of your own way, you know. It's it's about kind of like, you know, just <laughs> talking to yourself and, and working something out, you know. And, you know, they talk to themselves and at a certain point they think, yeah, why am I doing that? It's making me really unhappy. And, you know, if I stop doing that and I'm not unhappy anymore, I don't have to go out and get blind drunk and, you know, have terrible, god-awful stuff happen to me. So you'd be surprised. Happy people really, they just don't act out that way. They don't abuse substances. You know? Fewer Fewer problems to... Medicaid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times when somebody like a serious alcoholic, you get them sober for 90 days or, you know, six months or whatever in AA. And, you know, then they start realizing why they were drinking, you know, it's like, okay, I'm 90 days sober and now I'm dying for a drink because God, look at the wreckage of my life, you know, and that's when I swing in and I say, all right, well, let's, let's take a look at why your life is this wreck and, you know, and what can we do about it? It's your life. I mean, gee whiz, we ought to be able to get you out of your own way and give you the life you want. And then you don't have to ever drink again, you know, never end up in that horror of alcoholism and drug abuse. You've carved out an interesting niche with lawyers and, and Wall Street types and business people, but you also deal with artists, writers, and other creative types. Uh, is there a difference in, in what they go through in, in terms of their endeavors and, and the problems that they face? And I guess part of uh, sort of a follow-up question is, is the currency of their self-esteem different from the other professionals that you deal with? Uh, they're paid less. I think that's probably the biggest difference. Other than that, <laughs> I think they're just born with different talents, really. <laughs> I mean, I've thought this one through, and, you know, I wonder. I mean, uh, you know, some people play saxophone, and some people are really good at, you know, closing M&A deals. I'm not sure it's that different, except we pay one of them a whole lot of money and treat them differently. You know, it's it, you're, you're born with an aptitude. So, 
you know, I mean, I work with a television actor who's very successful now. He's getting lots of shows and stuff. And, you know, it's funny because when the money starts to come, they start treating you like you work on Wall Street, you know, <laughs> and you start to realize, you know, you know, a year ago he was this creative person, an actor, and everyone sort of vaguely felt sorry for him, but really respected him, you know. Now it's like, oh, him, he just does TV, you know, and he's doing a movie with whatever, but, you know, and it's, you know, and, and then suddenly he's in a different realm and you think, well, what's the difference? Well, I think it's just that they pay them less generally, you know. It's harder to make it in those fields because I guess we don't need as much art as we need, I don't know, accounting done or something. But I mean, I don't know if it's that big a difference. I think we, we tend to sort of put this wall up between creative people and non-creative people. Uh, or we, or I mean, really, when you think about it, everything's creative in some sense. Maybe that's it. You know, we should just accept that. I mean, I, I think people who do very well in finance, people who make, you know, huge money, their skill, if I were to sort of define it, would be a game skill, you know? I had a friend who was a vastly wealthy banker and God, he loved games and, you know, card games and board games and strategy games and he would just win every damn time. I mean, just every time. I would play over and over again. I'd play with other friends and get really good, and then we'd go back and play with them, and he would always win. And, you know, <laughs> I, I think if you were sitting down with uh, Warren Buffett playing poker, he would just just take you, you know, and shake you, and you'd lose every cent you had because the guy is that good. So, you know, I mean, that is sort of a creative ability, you know, and that's just like someone who can paint a beautiful painting or something. It's just, a, you know, he's he's one of the, at the tail, I guess, of the curve. You know, he's one of those outliers who just is incredibly good at this thing. What a terrific conversation. Uh, for those people who may be listening and sort of hearing their situation in some of the things we talked about before and feel like they need some help, what's the best thing for them to do? I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I feel a little self-serving saying, well, you should do some therapy, you know. On the other hand, look, I'm a therapist, right? So, I mean, I sort of think everyone should do some therapy. You know, I mean, I also, uh, you know, uh, tip my hat at like trainers and yoga instructors and people like that. I think that, you know, mind and body go together. I had a lawyer today, actually, who was saying to me, you know, I miss being athletic. I used to be an athlete. Like, I miss feeling good about my body. I feel like I just eat takeout food at my desk, and I'm turning into a big lump. And I was like, well, go for a run, for heaven's sake. Get to the gym, you know? But um, he had this problem where it was taking a toll on his marriage. He was coming back and just sort of unloading his anxiety on his wife, I think. And it was doing it was doing harm to his marriage. He was like, look, you know, I never see you. And when I do see you, all you do is come and tell me how miserable you are at work or, you know, how overloaded and this and that. I mean, you know, find someone to talk to. So, um, yeah, it can, it can help to talk to somebody, you know, it really, you know, they tell young therapists, if you're listening, you're doing more than you think. And that's because the other person's talking to themselves, you know, the other person's getting something out that they really, you know, I mean, look, I mean, the thing about psychotherapy is it seems so flaky and everyone talks about, oh, is Freud, is he, is it dead? Is this, that next thing, you know? But on the other hand, look, it seems so intuitively obvious that it helps to talk, right? I mean, everybody at some level knows that, you know, if you gave them a quiet room someplace, the name of my practice, not coincidentally, um, and someone who really seems to care and is smart enough to understand, yeah, we'd all enjoy getting something said for an hour, right? I mean, why wouldn't that be a really helpful thing that would probably feel pretty good? Will, thank you very much for being on. What is the best way to keep in touch with you and to follow your writing? Uh, you can check out my blog. It's uh, thepeoplestherapist.com. And uh, also my private practice website is aquietroom.com. And uh, the blog, you know, I'm, I'm always posting things. And uh, I also write uh, now and again for uh, abovethelaw.com, which is a really fun website about law. So, uh, and the books, you know, I, I don't know, I might have another one in me. I always say, that's it. I'm never writing another book. And then out pops another book. So, uh, you know, I couldn't believe it, but I actually came up with a second volume of way worse than being a dentist. And the title was just staring me in the face and everyone agreed as soon as I said it, which was still way worse than being a dentist. So what's <laughs> <laughs> well, amazing. Sometimes titles just drive books, whether, whether they need to be written or not. And your, your book I've read, which is, it's, it's great. I, I love it. But sometimes the title is, it, it, it has its own form. 
force. Well, you know, my first book is called uh, Life is a Brief Opportunity for Joy. And uh, it is, you know, and I, a lot of people come to me just unbelievably unhappy. And I don't know if they believe me, but I say this has a happy ending, you know. Everyone has the right to get up in the morning looking forward to their day and, you know, to do something that's fulfilling. And, and you know, lawyers sometimes are so cynical. They just, business people too sometimes. But I mean, you can live authentically and still make a decent living. You know, I mean, it, we can pull this off. This, this story can have a happy ending, you know. Life is a brief opportunity for joy. It really is. Terrific. Will, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to New York City psychotherapist Will Meyerhofer. Check back soon for our next episode. And be sure to check the full slate of podcasts on FraserRice.com. Thanks again and have a great day.